America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. This week's episode of Leader of the Pack is brought to you by our friends at Spring Creek Manufacturing. Spring Creek Manufacturing is made in the USA and has been based in Mountain Iron, Minnesota since 1985. Believe it or not, they are America's original canoe stabilizer manufacturer. They also build unbeatable American-made truck racks. I have one on my own personal truck and love it, along with making the world's best camp saw. Plus, now is the time to properly store your canoes and kayaks, and I recommend the Spring Creek Manufacturing Garage Storage Rack. And don't just take my word for it. Check out their website at springcreek.com and read their many five-star reviews. Plus, enjoy an exclusive discount with code LEADER15. That is LEADER, L-E-A-D-E-R-1-5 for a 15% off site-wide discount. Exclusions may apply. Now, back to the podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is Duluth Pack's podcast, Leader of the Pack. And today we have a really special guest and a friend of mine, Dr. Mike King, cardiothoracic surgeon. Mike, welcome. No, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. We're, we're going to have some fun today, folks, and we're going to learn about a business that is very different than what many of us consider day-to-day business. And, and I've been lucky enough to know Dr. King for a lot of years and, and been able to ask him a lot of questions because I'm very intrigued about his career and what he does for a living because it's, it's so different. You know, I always tell uh, Dr. King, I always tell our, our employees that you know, what we do here really matters and it's important to us, but we're not saving lives. We're not doing heart surgery. And I use that all the time. Well, you do. So Mike, tell us a little bit of background on yourself and where did you grow up and where did you go to high school? So Tom, I grew up in the, uh, the deep South. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, home of the blues, Elvis Presley, BB King. Uh, that's where I grew up at. And, uh, I went to a high school, a uh, Mesic high school, which uh, shows my age is no longer there. It's been subsequently torn down, <laughs> but uh, I grew, grew up in Memphis and went to high school there and, and uh, actually uh, went to college and medical school, both in Memphis. So I, I have a lot of deep Memphis roots. And, and we can tell a little bit by the accent. You know, you lived in Minnesota a long time, Doc, but uh, but you, some things you just can't, oh, can't kick true. them all to the curb. That's true. That's true. Did you know in high school or was it in college that you wanted to go into the medical profession? You know, actually, Tom, uh, you know, in all serious, seriousness, I, I really felt a calling, a calling by, by the Lord, really, when I was seven years of age despite a, a pretty dysfunctional family that I grew up in, uh, I just really felt the Lord calling to me to, um, to go into medicine. And, you know, it seemed like such a far, far uh, unattainable reach uh, for all those years. I, I grew up very poor. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, my family was pretty dysfunctional. My father was, uh, um, I'm not 
ashamed of it necessarily, and nor am I proud of it. But he was uh, his addiction to alcohol was pretty bad, and and I think that uh, my self esteem in general as a little boy was was pretty was quite poor. And um, I think that when I was seven, God just called to me and said, you know, I have a, a purpose for your life. And, uh, and I felt that calling. And, and really, Tom, it seems so, you know, corny. But ever since I was seven, that's all I ever wanted to do. Be a doctor. So, so you knew that you wanted to go into the medical profession is, is in grade school, high school. Were you strong in the sciences? You know, Tom, once you get uh, self-esteem, you know, I could go to the school uh, and, uh, you know, read the, the textbooks and, and, you know, study and I can make good grades. And that was my form of self-esteem. I wasn't a good athlete, you know, uh, you know, I was kind of a, just a social musician, uh, but I could make good grades. And so uh, it was just my avenue to, to really, um, you know, to kind of survive a, a pretty, like I said, tough upbringing. And, and it also led me in the direction of, of where it was, you know, I, I, I couldn't understand uh, what it takes to get to that point, that is to get into medical school. You don't have to make good grades. You have to study hard, you know, apply yourself. So it became a pretty natural thing after a while. So, so your undergraduate, what was that in if you knew that your focus and your, your tunnel vision to get into med school? Well, when I finished high school, or actually several months before I finished high school, I thought I would just kind of you know, go to undergraduate school. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I had to borrow, you know, the money to go to college. Uh, but uh, I, I, at that time, I wasn't in a real hurry until one day in the mail, Tom, uh, I received a little note from the government, uh, the conscription service, uh, <laughs> the, you know, which said, basically, you have a low number and uh, you might be thinking about uh, going over to Vietnam and serving, you know, your country. And that was a pretty uh, sobering experience to, to open up that letter. And, and uh, so I went down the draft board, uh, took the physical, and um, I, you know, this is like two months before I was going to graduate from high school. And I, I took, talked to the recruiter and I said, what is the chances of me not having to go to, to Vietnam? And, and uh, uh, the, both of those guys, they laughed at me and they said, are you kidding, man? You know, uh, you, you're going to enjoy it. You know, you, you, you know, really, we really appreciate your service to this country. And I said, well, is there any way that I might possibly be able to, you know, to go in another direction? Because I really want to go to medical school eventually. And they said, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe if you had a student deferment, maybe if you went, you know, if you were in school at the time. So I'm telling you, Tom, I graduated on Friday uh, evening uh, from uh, high school. Monday morning, I was in summer school <laughs> in college, you know, and, uh, and I guess I worked because I, I never, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have to serve. I kind of regret that in a sense, I have deepest, deepest respect for veterans and people who have given uh, the ultimate sacrifice, many of them for this country. Uh, but uh, that was the path I chose to go right from high school, right into summer school and, and, uh, and then thought, well, I, I better really study hard. So, and, and work hard. So I, I was uh, I went straight through three years and got uh, two majors in uh, chemistry and biology and then minored in English uh, with the intention of then applying to medical school. So you jump in head over heels into into college right away when a lot of us, to be honest, really didn't have a clue when we go into college with with, hey, I don't know what I really want to do when I grow up. You really knew you wanted what you wanted to do. So you get through with college in three years. You go into the sciences, you apply to med school and you get into med school also down in the Memphis area. 
I did. I went, you know, once again, you know, I didn't have a lot of funds or anything and money. I, I was, I was borrowing money to go to college. And then subsequently I, I needed to stay local just because the tuition would be less. So I went to the university of Tennessee, which was also their campuses in, in Memphis, Tennessee. So um, I went straight from, you know, finishing my undergraduate degree thinking I would go right to medical school, but, but, you know, uh, the Lord had uh, different plans for me because I applied Tom late, uh, you know, to medical school. So, you know, I, you know, I, I worked so hard to get through in three years thinking that I would just walk right into medical school. And then they said, well, too bad, but you know, you applied beyond the deadline, you know, for this next entering class. So I basically had a year to kill. Okay. And uh, I asked uh, the Lord, you know, like, well, what, what are you going to, what purpose is this? I mean, I, why did I work so hard three years if I could have just done it in four years, you know? I said, now I have to, you know, take a year off in a sense. So, um, so I applied, but during that year, uh, I had several jobs. I began as, as a janitor in surgery. Then I became a, uh, an attendant in the recovery room, taking patients back and forth to the rooms. Then I became a scrub assistant, basically someone who would hold retractors while the surgeons would, would open up the body cavities to do their procedures. And then one day, um, strange enough, uh, well, maybe not so strange because God works in mysterious ways, but um, I met a, a cardiac surgeon down in Memphis and he said, listen, you've been around here for, for several months and I wonder if we could uh, entice you to work for us. And I'm thinking, absolutely. You know, what, what, what do you need me to do? You know, and he said, well, we're doing this new procedure. It's called coronary artery bypass surgery, coronary artery bypass surgery. And what we do, Mike, is that we take the vein, the saphenous vein out of the leg, and we basically sew that onto the heart past the, the, the blockage in the, in the arteries in the heart muscle. And, and you know, I, the, once again, Tom, I've got a college degree. That's it, you know. Uh, and uh, so uh, no formal training. No, I wasn't a nurse, nothing like that. So he said, we'll train you. Don't worry, you know. And, uh, and they did. And so for several months, I worked with the cardiac surgeons in Memphis. Uh, harvesting the vein and helping them do these procedures, coronary bypass surgery, which at that time was huge. Finally, there was a way to treat blocked arteries and, pe and prevent people from having heart attacks or dealing with their chest pain. And um, I mean, they were just so busy, two, three, four cases a day. And it was a great experience for me. And he was, uh, his name was Brister Harrington. He was a, a huge mentor and, and, and uh, guy in my life that, that made such an impact. And he encouraged me when I finished um, working for them. And I was then, you know, accepted to medical school. He said, what are you going to do when you finish medical school? And I said, well, I, I guess I want to finish medical school first. And, and then I said, I'll probably do something in surgery. And, and he said, well, what kind of surgery are you going to do? And I said, I'll probably do general surgery, you know, take gallbladders out, colon resections, something like that. And, and he got angry at me. He really got angry at me. And he said, what are you talking about? You need to go into a cardiac surgery. You need to be a cardiac surgeon. Come back and join our group. We'd love to have you. Forget that general surgery stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank gosh for you know that you have uh, that yeah. you have mentors out there that can push yeah, us yeah. in in directions maybe we wouldn't have yeah. ended up. True, totally. So, totally. so you go to bad school then, and <clears throat> and you have your mentor telling you, "Hey, here's the deal. You're going to go to med school, but then there's some specialties. And by the way, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, this is the direction we need you oh, to go." Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, he just basically uh, just offered me a job. I mean, he, I hadn't even finished, you know, medical school yet. Uh, but he, 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 he wanted me to come back and join their group and be part of their, their group. And that was, I felt, I thought that was very kind and considerate and 
and uh, affirming to me. So I appreciate that. So you go to four years of med school, and then you have to go further schooling, obviously, uh, for your specialties. Yeah. So uh, back then, you know, Tom, there was, uh, in order to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, you had to become a general surgeon first. So the general surgery programs were five years, and then the cardiac surgical programs were either two or three years. So once again, this gentleman uh, down in Memphis, he was very instructive about where I should go. I, I said, well, where do you think I should do my residency post-medical uh, school? And he said, well, well, if you want to be a heart surgeon, which you should do, there's only one place that you should go. You should go to Minnesota. And I said, Minnesota, wait a minute. I'm from the South, <laughs> Mason Dixon line. It's cold up there. <laughs> they, have this, they have this entity, it's called snow and ice. I'm not, I'm not really into snow and ice, you know? But it's only, said, don't worry about it. Only eight months a year, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, eight months a year, yeah. He said, well, you should go to the Mayo Clinic. And, um, you know, I, I told uh, him, I said, well, you know, Dr. Harrington, you know, I'm just a poor guy from the South, you know, I don't know anyone up North. He said, well, let me tell you what you do. Go up there, spend six weeks during the summer of your last year of medical school, I get to know them. And if it works out well, the chemistry, then uh, apply and hopefully you'll, you can do your residency there. So that's how, that was my connection to Minnesota. Uh, once again, for his leading and his um, really encouragement to, to seek what he considered the very best place to train for cardiothoracic surgery at that time, which was Rochester, Minnesota. So Mike, how many years of school and residency does this all add up to then? Well, if you take the four years of undergraduate or excuse me, the three years of undergraduate and the four years of medical school, then another five years of uh, general surgery, and then the other three years of uh, cardiac surgery, you put all that together, that's uh, 15, 16 years. Holy catfish. Okay. Well, you know what? Here's what I'll tell you is whoever works on my heart, if any, anyone ever has to, <laughs> I want them to, 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 to have a lot of schooling. So now you're, you're at the Mayo, correct? Yes. And, yes. and you're doing, how long were you at the Mayo? I was actually there uh, 10 years, a total of 10 years. 10 years. And, and, so at that point, you are a cardiothoracic surgeon. Correct. Okay. okay. And then you get into private practice. Correct. So uh, at, at Mayo at that time, they really weren't doing any transplant surgery uh, and uh, heart transplant surgery. And there was a gentleman uh, here in Minneapolis. Uh, his name was Dr. Lyle Joyce. And he uh, and actually encouraged me, he contacted me and he said, you know, we have a group in town. Uh, we work mainly at Abbott Northwestern Hospital, but we also work at North Memorial and some of the other hospitals. And, and we have a transplant program. And uh, we actually are also starting an artificial heart uh, program. Uh, and uh, so I came up to the Twin Cities, Peggy and I did, my wife. We met Dr. Joyce and his family and Dr. Eels and Dr. Kaiser. And it just seemed like a good fit. And so we uh, traveled, you know, the 70 miles or whatever from Rochester up to Minneapolis, joined that group. And I practiced uh, in that group for about 15 years before I became a, uh, a, an employed cardiothoracic surgeon here at North Memorial. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, when you were doing uh, transplants? What, what goes into a heart transplant? Well, you know, I think, I think the, the lay public thinks that, oh, this is just such a very, very tedious, difficult, uh, stressful procedure. 
But the truth of the matter is doing a heart transplant is not that difficult. It's, it's uh, uh, using large sutures. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a pretty easy operation. It's, it's more technically, uh, you know, taxing to do uh, very fine coronary artery bypass work, frankly, than, than it is uh, doing a heart transplant. Uh, but it's also very, very rewarding. Those transplant patients are so terribly sick uh, by the time that they actually, um, you know, receive their heart transplant. And to see them the next day uh, or the day after, after they have a new heart, I mean, it's like, you know, this is a new person. Their color changes. They, they go from ashen and gray to actually pink and, and, and viable. And it's just, it's a, it was a very rewarding uh, so I know, I know when I've talked to, to you about this in the past, and I've questioned you, and we've been around each other, sometimes I, I would guess probably to nauseam, because what you do is so different than, than what I've, my, the realm of my life is that you also have teams, I believe, if, if I remember correctly, you have a team when it comes to transplants, that actually gets the organ, or organs, and then you have a team that then puts the organs in the, the transplant, uh, transplant patient. That's correct, Tom. So we have two teams. One is the harvesting team, which uh, I would do that uh, on occasion. And then the other times I would be involved with actually uh, putting the heart into the recipient, you know? Does that have to do uh, with timing? Uh, it really became a matter of availability, you know, because back when I was doing transplants with Dr. Joyce and Dr. Eels, Dr. Emery, others down at Abbott, uh, it was a matter of who was available to go and either uh, retrieve the heart and then who's available to actually do the implantation, you know, or to actually sew the heart into the recipient. So uh, you would, it just depends on what you were doing the next day. If you were loaded up with doing two or three elective cases, you, probably that's not the best thing to stay up all night going to either to harvest the heart or to put in the, the, the uh, you know, the, into the recipient. Uh, so it's became who was available. And I had some, some really excellent mentors, uh, Dr. Joyce, Dr. Yills. Uh, Dr. Emery, they're great guys because we were, I really didn't do any of that down at Mayo. That was that just hadn't really started yet. And so they kind of took me under their wing and, and um, you know, taught me the ropes. And, and, uh, and that program continues, of course, down at Abbott today. Dr. King, you had mentioned also about artificial at that time. Uh, was that like the old Barney Clark days that way I was thinking and, and I was thinking and it popped in my head, the Barney Clark days. Uh, so did, did that ever get traction or did, was it just found that uh, help us out with that a little bit? You know, I think it did. Uh, it certainly uh, got traction. Uh, uh, Dr. Joyce was uh, the one who actually implanted with Dr. DeReeves the artificial heart in uh, Barney Clark. In Utah, and uh, when Lyle came to the Twin Cities, uh, it was his hope and intention to bring that technology to Abbott, and he did. And he and Dr. Emery um, and and others uh, were involved. Dr. Joyce was the main leader in uh, in the Jarvik heart, uh, artificial heart there at, at Abbott. But I think it became pretty obvious to everyone that you needed such a, a, a huge number of of additional bodies, you know, uh, physicians and nurses and everything, you know, you need a, you can't just do coronary bypass or valve replacements. And by the way, you're doing transplants also, you need a dedicated team, dedicated cardiologists, dedicated cardiothoracic surgeons. And I think that was the beauty that Abbott, excuse me, uh, that uh, the university and, uh, and Mayo uh, have, they have people who 
pretty much specialize in that. And now Abbott does too, I believe. But uh, at that time, everyone did a little bit of everything. That was just part of the okay of the gig. What? Tell us a little bit about the the typical day of a cardiothoracic surgeon. <laughs> Uh, well, it's changed a lot, Tom, over the years. You know, it really has. I think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier in my, you know, growing up years, so to speak, when I was being mentored by Dr. Harrington, for example, coronary bypass was just, I mean, there weren't enough hours in the day to do all the cases. And there weren't enough uh, cardiothoracic surgeons. The programs around the country were, were the competition was so steep to, to get into uh, a cardiac training program because there was so much work. There were so many patients that needed the services. And so the programs were going gangbuster trying to, to uh, graduate two or three applicants or, or fellows per year. Uh, and what changed though, Tom, is that when interventional cardiology, the cardiologist uh, developed angioplasty where they could go in with a balloon and open up the blocked artery. And then subsequently that transitioned to actually putting stents in then the heyday of coronary artery bypass surgery um, had come and I don't say it's gone, but it certainly there was uh, more selective and there were less patients that went direct to the surgery and more patients that, that received stents. And then when drug eluting stents uh, came on the front, um, once again, less and less patients that the cardiothoracic surgeon would be asked to see for bypass surgery. So what is a drug eluting stent? So uh, a stent is like the inside of a, a ballpoint pen, basically, uh, a metal type of, of a cage. And it's impregnated with and coated with uh, certain drugs, which uh, promote uh, or prevent uh, clots and fibrosis and scar tissue from forming within the, the wire cage. And uh, that uh, is, is the, those wonderful ideas, a novel idea. And the, the drug eluting stents stay open longer than a stent that just doesn't have any drug impregnated into it. And so the cardiologist most of the time will not use bare, bare metal stents. Uh, that is without the coating. They, they're generally putting coated stents these days. Okay. So that is the cardiologists do the stents uh, in yes. like a cath lab. And then, yes. and then you stick more to the more invasive cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah, I think, Tom, that, that these days, the interventional cardiologists are, are, are pretty aggressive, you know, in most places, certainly in, in Minnesota in general. And I think that if they have the ability to put one or two or sometimes more stents in someone, they'll do that first. Uh, and then they'll call the cardiothoracic surgeon only if they just find it technically impossible to place the stents or if a patient's had stents in the past and they begin to close up or block off in time then uh, they'll, they'll enlist the, uh, the help of the cardiothoracic surgeon to offer the patient uh, conventional bypass surgery. Okay. So, so what would a, a typical day, if, if there is such, for you? Well, in the, in the past, my typical day was I would get up at 6, I'll roll into the hospital about 6.30, and uh, several years ago I was doing two or three you know, bypass operations or valve replacements per day. So my, my typical week would be probably doing somewhere between 12 to 15 heart surgeries during that week and then taking call, um, you know, every other weekend or every third weekend, depending on how the coverage was at. So uh, several years ago, I was very busy um, and uh, um, you had to be pretty efficient just to get that kind of workload done. And uh, um, what changed is that with the stents and especially the drug eluting stents, there are less patients that are, that are being 
uh, filtered to the cardiothoracic surgeon. So my days, um, you know, like for example, this week, um, you know, you may have one or two cases to do, you know, uh, but uh, nothing like the 15 or so that you did before. So I think it's much, much better lifestyle, but the volume is just not the same. We are, we're late in the day today. It's 3.30. So how did your day go today so far? Oh, today was a great day. You saw some patients upstairs that had operated in the past. And uh, I was just kind of uh, talking to my colleagues and uh, talking about some cases that uh, uh, were actually operated on, on today. And uh, then I'm at three o'clock. I wanted to come you know, chat with you, you know, on this podcast. So uh, it's been a pretty, a pretty straightforward, a pretty easy day. So no, no surgeries for you today? Well, not today. Yesterday I was on call. I'm on call tomorrow. And you just never know what's going to come through. The, the problem about being on call is that you don't know what's going to come either through the emergency room or what's going to happen in the cath lab. Because there certainly are patients that, that go to the cath lab, the cardiologist cannot open up the blocked arteries, and you're at, either asked emergently to operate them or schedule it sometime in the near future. COVID has changed things a lot. If, if you could sum it up is, is like the, the, the fulfilling part of you see a patient and obviously they're very ill and they need to have open heart surgery. And then you see this patient again afterwards. How fulfilling is that? I think that's a great point, Tom. You know, I think as surgeons, we tend to be very narrow-minded in the sense that uh, we think of, of the patient going to the operating room, having the procedure, and then them going home and the operation's over. But that's really not the truth. The patient, uh, the operation is not over until two or three months later when they come back into your office and saying, doc, thanks so much. I've healed up, you know, my incisions are fine. And I don't have that chest pain or I don't have that shortness of breath or whatever brought them initially in for their evaluation. That's what's very fulfilling and rewarding. Yeah. So what's the most challenging part of being in such a specialty of, of uh, cardiothoracic surgeon? And, and, and as I've done some, some research for this, I, I want to ask a few questions in the, as we come up here, too, because it, it, it's, there's cardio, but then there's also thoracic. And I know yes, those mean yes. two very different things. But what's, what's the, the most challenging part of, of what you do for a living? I think the most challenging part, Tom, is, is the judgment that needs to go into every seeing every patient. You know, I think that um, as, as doctors, you know, you graduate from medical school, they call you doctor. You get an MD, you know, medical doctor. But a medical doctor is not the same thing as a physician. And to be a physician, that takes years of experience and it takes learning uh, judgment. So I think the most challenging part of my day many times is deciding not necessarily who to operate on, but who's not going to benefit from an operation. It's like going to the hardware store. If you're a carpenter and you go to the hardware store and you buy a hammer, good chance you're going to use the hammer. And I think that uh, as a cardiothoracic surgeon or any type of surgeon, you know, the best surgeons in my mind are the ones who not necessarily know how or, or where to operate, but they know when to not operate, you know? So it's the judgment is really the, uh, the challenge. Who's going to really benefit, you know? You know, anybody can learn how to operate. I mean, it's a technical skill, Tom. It's not like something that that uh, only a few people could could be, you know, were chosen to you know to do. Uh, I, I think that it's it's a technical skill, but it's really uh, the judgment that goes in deciding who's going to really you know benefit 
and are the risks worth taking uh, for the potential benefit to the patient? That And that's also the most fun. It's the most challenging, but that's also the most rewarding, the most fun. And that must re- a lot of that must come with a lot of experience and, and a lot of wisdom that you gain from, from doing what you've done for so many years. I think so. I think so, Tom. I, I think I'm, I, I think I'm at my, my top of my game right now at 69 from, from the standpoint of wisdom and judgment, you know? Um, and it just, you know, takes 7,000 operations probably to figure that out. But I mean, uh, I think, I think I look at things a lot different than I did, for example, the first few years when I, that I got out of my training program, you know, I think it, as a young surgeon, you're just trying to, to learn the ins and outs of operating independently, you know, without somebody across the table telling you what to do, where to put a stitch at this. So, um, you tend to be pretty aggressive and you tend to think that, Hey, you can take on anyone, you know, anyone's problem and you can you know, it'll turn out well for them. And, and I think, uh, you know, medicine and surgery is humbling and you realize that despite all your best interests, efforts, sometimes, um, the patient won't have a good outcome. And I think that, uh, um, you know, there's two ways to look at that. One is to just say, well, that was a bad case. The other is to say, well, maybe my judgment was flawed. Maybe that patient really wasn't a good candidate to have that, shall we say, pretty, you know, radical or, you know, uh, aggressive approach surgically that, that we took. Sometimes you don't have no choice, but uh, in life and death matters. But but it's the ones where you look back and you say, you know, I, I wish I could have that one back, you know, that second pitch, you know what I mean? Sure. I, I don't know if people caught what you said there, but one of the things you said, and, and, and I don't know if this is the total number or that you said this is when you 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 gain that wisdom, but you said seven thousand. I don't know if people heard that. Somebody who's done seven thousand open heart surgeries. Well, I can tell you, if my heart ever goes bad, I have your phone <laughs> number and I know who I'm calling because I want the guy who's done a lot of them. You know, not, I'm, I'm definitely gonna. If I get there, I'm gonna say this isn't your first day, is it? <laughs> no, no. No. Well, I, you know, it, it it Mayo. I mean, before I left, I'd done a thousand. So I mean, it was uh, those were two very busy, busy years. And, uh, uh, the, the, the two last years when I was there and, uh, and of course, you know, you've been in practice, I've been in practice up here 34 years. So you've seen, and we were really busy at one time. Uh, but, uh, it's been a lot of cases, yeah, but I've, you know, it's been very rewarding. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't change it for anything. That, well, I, I want somebody like you and Ian, I think you're, uh, you're cutting yourself way short when you say it, it's the technical skills and anybody could do the technical skills. Uh, I would have to respectfully disagree with that because you don't want old Tom here uh, operating on your heart. I don't care how many times I've tried it. Let's, let's talk about a, a different subject because I, I, as I was getting ready to, to do this interview today for the podcast, one of the things is I was thinking, if I had to have an open heart surgery, I'm going to have a lot of emotional things going on as well. And a lot of fears going on because as, as experienced of a surgeon as you are, it's still my heart that needs to be fixed and worked on. And this is pretty serious business. How do you deal with the patients from the standpoint of, of their emotional uh, strife that they're going through and, and some of the fears that they're obviously going to have? Well, you know, I think, Tom, we take a, an oath when you're in medical school, when you graduate, uh, to treat pain and suffering. And, uh, but you're not, you don't take an oath to give someone immortality. 
And I think that part of all that is that you need to be able to walk in the patient's shoes. You need to be able to look the patient across the, the table or the chair in another chair and feel that same anxiety and emotion and, and suffering that, that they have. And I think those are the really, those are the, the great physicians, you know, if you can attain that, then, then I think, then, it, you know, you, you reached a level that, that uh, is, is pretty high because I think it, it's so much easier to just take the, the denial approach or just say, well, you know, I'm going to go in there and do a job. We're going to do a, a valve replacement or transplant your heart or whatever we're going to do. And I don't want to deal with the emotions behind all that because, you know, I, I have to keep going as a surgeon. So I, if I get too involved with, with your emotions, it's going to affect me. But I, I look at it differently. I look at it like, you know, it's really a ministry that we're trying to provide. Uh, I mean, physical as well as a spiritual and emotional healing for the patient. And I don't think you can do the latter two unless you're willing to, you know, put yourself in a vulnerable position and actually empathize with the patient and, and walk in their shoes. So you invest yourself right with them and, and, and feel that with them. That's, that's amazing because, you know, that, that's, that's the complete package. If you ask me and, and uh, I I'm very wowed by it. <clears throat> Can we talk about some equipment? Let's talk about earlier in your career, some of the equipment that you had to work with and technology that you had to work with Dr. King. And then let's talk about today on some of the technology and the equipment there is. I'm assuming there's, there's been some changes over the years. Yes, I, th I think, Tom, uh, the, the heart-lung machine and the basic setup uh, hasn't really changed a lot over the years. There have been some tweaks here and there, but it's basically the heart-lung machine, per se, is, is the basic design and the function is, is pretty much, uh, you know, been consistent throughout the years. But what's changed so much, I think, is the fact that now some of these procedures can be done with smaller incisions because the equipment is so much better. Some of these procedures can be done without using the heart-lung machine at all. Uh, and also uh, something that used to be pretty much the bread and butter of what a cardiac surgeon would do, which is a valve replacement or a valve repair, is now being tackled by the interventional cardiologist, uh, you know, in the cath lab. So valves are being placed through the groin. I mean, an entire valve is being implanted into your heart through the groin, no incisions, no nothing. Um, and uh, clips are being placed on the mitral valve that someone who has a leaky mitral valve. Now, uh, some places they clip the valve. Uh, and of course, if you're the patient, you can, you can just imagine if someone offered you a procedure that doesn't involve entering your, uh, you know, body cavity, uh, without a major operation, obviously it's going to be very appealing to the patient. And so I think technology has really changed in being able to offer patients, uh, those alternatives these days. Do, does the patient get that alternative on, I would like to have this versus that done, or is it usually on the recommendation of you, the surgeon or the, the, the cardiologist together? Well, you know, I think everybody plays it differently, but when I see a patient, I, I go through all the different options. And one of the options, of course, Tom, is to do nothing, you know, do nothing or medical treatment which is generally not very satisfying, but I mean, it is an option. And then I amp it up from there. Well, you know, if you want to talk about here are the surgical options. And some of those are invasive, like something I would do, like opening the breastbone or going between the ribs or whatever to do a procedure. Uh, but some of them are, you know, well, maybe I, you know, one of the interventional cardiologists would be willing to 
the place of valve through the groin or to put a clip on your mitral valve or whatever. And, and, you know, the patients are very savvy these days. I mean, Dr. Google is, he's a very famous man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all, so, you know what? I think we all got our medical degrees through Google, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. WebMD. So, so, so I think that if, if, when you're seeing a patient, if you ignore that and try to just tell the patient, well, uh, forget about that. In fact, don't even bring it up and just talk about the surgical options. I think that you don't really give the patient true informed consent. I think you've got to talk as a surgeon about the less invasive procedures and be willing to go to bat for the patient if that's what they want. Because ultimately the patient is the, the consumer, you know, sure. uh, we're not treating the surgeon, you know, we're treating with the, with a patient like, and I think my job is to educate the patient and then let him make this decision about what procedure he wants done where he wants it done, which is not always in my institution, you know, uh, and uh, when and whatnot. So I think, you know, it's, it's an education process. So Dr. King, if, if we're talking a lot about the cardiac end, and I, I do want to ask, ask more questions about the thoracic end um, of what you do, but let's standard uh, bypass surgery. How long does a bypass surgery take? Uh, it can take about three or four hours sometimes, Tom. It just depends on, on how many vessels you need to bypass. Uh, part of, of course, doing the bypass operation is that you have to remove the saphenous vein from the leg. So we have a team that does that at the same time that we harvest the internal thoracic or the internal mammary artery, which is underneath the, the chest cavity. We, we, we harvest that. We get those all prepared before we ever go on the heart-lung machine or, or even if we're doing it off-pump. Some people do that. Uh, then uh, we have to still prepare the conduit before we're ready to actually do this, the procedure to sew the onto the uh, block vessel. So, so, can you explain to us? You hear people, and it's like, hey, my my grandfather, or my uncle, or my dad, or whomever, um, they had a triple bypass, or they had a single bypass, or they had a double bypass. Can you explain the difference between all of those? Well, there, there are three major uh, arteries in the heart muscle. Uh, there's a, a left main coronary artery that branches into uh, what we call the left anterior descending coronary artery, and then the circumflex coronary artery. Those are the two major ones on the left side. And then there's our right coronary artery as well. So, uh, but all those three vessels have tributary vessels that come off, smaller vessels. And sometimes they're pretty large vessels. And so at the time of surgery, uh, you may wind up doing four, five, six vessel bypass on the patient uh, if his anatomy warrants it. On the other hand, if they just have just three arteries uh, or they have two arteries that are blocked, but the third one's in pretty good shape, doesn't have a lot of blockage in, then you'd only have two bypasses. So the number doesn't make as much difference as uh, how many blockages really are so what is the one that we always hear and, and, you know, we'll be sitting in, in deer camp and it's like, Hey, did you hear that? So-and-so had a heart attack and they had to have bypass because it was the widow maker. Yes. Yes. So the widow maker is generally the left anterior descending coronary artery that goes down the center of the heart, Tom. And it supplies the anterior wall of the heart, as well as a bit of the lateral wall, the apex of the heart, and also the septum between the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And it's, and it's a major coronary artery. And if that blocks off, you can have a major a heart attack or an arrhythmia and death, you know, from the heart attack. So that's why it's, uh, it's not a good, good place to have a heart attack at. No, 
you like to prevent that. Yeah. Okay, so we've been we've been uh, pretty serious here in our discussion so far, and and as I open this up, Doctor King, that you and I have known each other for a lot of years, <laughs> and uh, I happen yeah. to be in deer camp with you when you shot your yeah. first deer ever. Which That's right. which That's folks, right. I have to say, it, we ate that deer. It was very tasty. <laughs> we butchered it all ourselves, but yeah. but we got a treat that night that Doctor yeah. King shot his deer because. <laughs> First of all, I've never seen a person gut a deer with scalpels before, and you, you did a very nice job, but you also took the heart home with you. Right, right, and, right, right. And after dinner that night, folks, I was able to watch Dr. King do a bypass surgery on a deer heart, which was absolutely amazing, but I'll never forget what you said, and that was, you looked across the table at all of us, and you said, you only wish your heart looked this good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, of course, a deer, a deer heart, a deer, deer's heart does not have any uh, atherosclerosis or blockages, of course, in the arteries. And uh, I mean, even in an animal, I mean, the heart is such an incredible organ, you know, I mean, it, it does one thing, it pumps, you know, and uh, it's just so efficient. Uh, and, and it's just how God could design a pump that, that if we, you know, we, you and I were talking about artificial hearts. So we still to this day, not being able to come up with something that has anywhere near the efficiency or can last without clot problems and bleeding problems, everything uh, like the human heart. So, it, and to do a, a heart transplant, uh, you know, and to see the patient, like I said, the day after, you know, it's just like a new lease on life. I mean, so it's just an incredible organ. So even in a deer, it's amazing. I can tell you, I've seen that firsthand because a, a good friend of mine uh, had a heart attack and had a, a has a, had a heart transplant and is very healthy and doing very well. And it's absolutely amazing to see somebody who had been so ill and, and yeah. uh, a person who had been healthy had a heart attack and, and everything went downhill so fast that to have that happen is, is absolutely amazing take a little shift here now from from deer hunting and uh and move to the thoracic part yes, yes can you explain yes, what what does that part of of what you do well you know that's an interesting question tom and, and it's really evolved through the years because uh, when i trained you were trained uh to be a heart surgeon as well as a lung surgeon a, and an esophageal surgeon actually we did a lot of that at mayo you know uh and and now the programs have have uh, changed and shifted to where uh, you can actually avoid doing general surgery in some of these programs are very short period of time doing general surgery. And you go right into just a purely cardiac surgical fellowship. And then you have programs which are based on doing some general surgery and all just thoracic surgery or all just lung surgery and esophageal surgery. So the, the two subspecialties have, have, have now, now exist, coexist. They used to be one but now the people are graduating from most of the programs these days are, are really, they, they go in the direction of even being doing lung surgery or being a cardiac surgeon. So most lung surgeries, would that be more of uh, cancer induced type surgeries or what, what kind of surgeries would we be talking about with the thoracic system? I think uh, lungs, uh, lung cancer, that's probably number one. Uh, then problems with infections that go in, into the, get into the chest cavity, uh, empyemas, that's what that's called. And, and then of course some young patients who actually they, they drop their lung or they have a spontaneous pneumothorax. Uh, that was another 
uh, you know, when I used to do a lot of lung surgery, that's something that we treated quite often. What, what, what is that in layman's terms? Uh, it's where a weak spot in the lung, it just pops, you know, and the lung is filled with air. It's just a sponge filled with air. And if the, the lining uh, over the lung uh, were to rupture, then air escapes from the lung into the chest cavity and causes the lung to uh, collapse. Okay. Dr. King, if you, if you could have a preface of questions that people would come to you prior to, we talked earlier about some of the anxiousness and, and obviously fears of going into, what, what would be some good questions that a patient who's having heart issues could come to you with that, that helps out the whole scenario? Well, you know, Tom, I, I've never been criticized for this, uh, but I, I try to ask the patients uh, when I think it's appropriate, you know, about their their faith, you know, uh, and, you know, everyone wants to know what's the risk of the surgery. And, and I can say, well, you know, I, I think I can probably replace your valve with a one or 2% risk. I can probably replace your aorta with that one or 2% risk. I can do a bypass on you for the same risk, but it's still not zero. So if even if it's 1%, what if you're the 1% who has a complication or for some reason, uh, you know, doesn't make it, you know, expires that you pass away? Well, is it, how is it with you? You know, I mean, are you, are you prepared, you know, if, if this is, you know, ultimately going to be, you know, your, you know, your last day. And so I really think that my job throughout the years has been uh, much more than just being uh, a, a technical um, you know, a technician, uh, you know, in the sense of what surgeons do, but I felt that I also have a, a responsibility to the patient to go holistically and globally, you know, in, in a sense, uh, care for all the needs of the patient. And many times that's physically, emotionally, and, and then, uh, and then of course, spiritually. And, and I've had a lot of patients that I've, I've recommended that they not have an operation for whatever reason. And I see them a lot. I, they'll come back and tell me, thank you so much for, for putting my life in perspective for me, just in case, you know, I don't have another day on this earth. And so I, th I think that, that you really have that kind of obligation. That's awesome. And so you look at it from holistically from, from every angle for, for the patient. Let's talk about after. So somebody's had a bypass surgery. Now it's day one in the healing process. What is a typical and, and I don't know, even know if that's a, a good word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. A typical recovery time for somebody who's had bypass operation. Well, you know, I think the first week, uh, they're generally in the hospital four or five days, you know, Tom. And, and honestly, I mean, the first few days is pretty tough on the patient, you know. I mean, whether it's uh, they have a, you know, an incision between the ribs or whether the sternum, the breastbone is opened up. I mean, it's, it's pretty painful for the first few days. Uh, and I think that, uh, we, we, before surgery, tell the patient, they're going to experience a lot of discomfort. You know, the ICU nurses are just so excellent here, uh, that, uh, they, they give the patient plenty of narcotics and medication to try to alleviate the discomfort, but the first few days are tough. And, but, but actually Tom, you know, is, is, is mutilating as it seems like when you open up the breastbone, but about the fifth day or whenever they're ready to go home, the pain's not too bad. And when they came, come back to see me in the clinic two weeks after their operation, 
very few of them complain about a lot of chest discomfort. You know, they have a pillow actually, Tom, and they're told that they, whenever they cough, they should hold the pillow. And if they'll do that, that keeps the breastbone from moving at, at all. And, you know, during a couple of weeks, it's not too bad, but the whole recovery, the whole healing process takes probably about three months to tell you the truth. And is that, is that whole healing then, um, in, in, in the recovery, um, talking about, uh, uh, diet, exercise, all of that? Is it a whole program together at that point? It is. We try to go over some, some diet uh, recommendations for the patient before they leave, but we also uh, plug them into a cardiac rehab program before they leave the hospital. So they, uh, it's not real strenuous, but it, but it's, it really helps to recondition the, uh, the patient after they have a big operation like that because they, be, they, they leave pretty deconditioned. So they need to be reconditioned not just the heart, but their, their, you know, their legs. I mean, their whole body is just, you know, it's just surgery is just by, by nature, pretty catabolic, uh, you know, experience. And it takes a lot out of anyone. And, and that's why they need to be educated beforehand to know that this is not going to be, I'll be out here in two days and feeling, you know, like a hundred, you know, hundred bucks. I mean, it's going to, going to be tough for a few months, but ultimately it's going to be the best thing for you. Okay. What is the best advice you could give to all of us out there? so that we never have to come and see you in a professional standpoint. <laughs> uh, what if, if you had to, to, tr to look at a couple of triggers that are probably uh, things that cause us to, to end up with plaque in our vessels and, and create the, the situation where, hey, we may have to, we have blockage and, and we may end up having to see a surgeon someday. What can we do to to help us prevent that today and every day forward? Well, I think I'd begin, Tom, about, by taking the, 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 I mean, a very obvious thing that is, if you smoke, stop smoking. If you don't smoke, never, never even be lured into thinking that it's okay. Smoking is, a, is like throwing gas right on the fire for atherosclerosis. Uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, smoking cessation for sure. Then I think the next thing is uh, making sure that the patient's lipids or someone who's trying to, you know, trying to prevent a lot of plaque you know, or from forming, uh, have your lipids checked. Make sure that you don't, you know, walk around with a cholesterol 300 and an LDL cholesterol that's 150 or something like that. Uh, so because the medications, the statins and, uh, and other drugs are very helpful in trying to, to bring the, those lipid levels down to an appropriate level. Um, and then uh, obviously if one check, make sure your H A H one C A1C, excuse me, uh, your hemoglobin A1C is not elevated, for example, which it would be if you were a diabetic patient, uh, keep that under control, and hypertension, you know, uh, the, the silent killer, you know, make sure that, that uh, you know, you're not walking around with a blood pressure 180 over 110, but you feel fine, but it does, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very bad for your, you know, for your heart and your body in general, your kidneys, and it's something we can treat appropriately. But as I would say, the number one thing, and it really grieves me so much to see young people smoking, um, you know, because you know, when you're young, you think you're invincible and, you know, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it does, it's devastating, you know, it causes such terrible inflammation to the arteries and the heart muscle. And it's the, the plaque forms because the arteries become uh, scarred or damaged. And when that, and that happens, it's a secondary phenomenon of the plaque or the cholesterol builds up on the on the on the scar that occurs, and, and nicotine and, and smoking is a is a great nitus for that. Do, 
In just a couple of minutes, can you tell us lipids? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. Well, uh, for example, uh, cholesterol and triglycerides, which is sugars, basically. Okay. Uh, so maybe uh, people need to be a little more active and not not uh, hang out at the fast food restaurants as much as, as, as maybe they have in the past. Uh, but so they're not uh, you know, the, the, the fast food restaurants are not sponsoring your surgical team this year. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I probably should have my cards uh, at some of those places. But, uh, you know, I think it. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's amazing, you know, eat healthy. But uh, once again, I mean, we have patients that try to eat healthy and um, and they don't smoke and they still uh, you know, have problems with their heart. Uh, they have plaque deforms. They have heart attacks, and they and they come in. They say, "Geez, doc, I try to take great care of myself." And my first question is, "Did anybody ever check your lipids?" You know, Tom. Did anybody ever tell you what your cholesterol, your triglycerides were? Um, no. And so I think you know, even as um, uh, you know, a teenager, certainly someone in the early twenties, have your primary care doctor run your lipid profile to see what that looks like, and then depending on what it shows or whether or not you should be on medications to adjust it. it can some of that just be bad genes? T totally. I mean, one thing about atherosclerosis that we know, if you've got a bad family history, you, you're, you know, it's just the genetics is the one thing that we can't do anything about. We can stop smoking. We can treat your hypertension. We keep your diabetes under control. And we certainly can lower your lipids, uh, you know, uh, cholesterol and, and LDL cholesterol and their triglycerides with medication, but we can't do anything about the genetic factor. Okay. So this has been just so fun to listen to, Dr. King. And, and folks, this is Dr. Mike King, cardiothoracic surgeon, who's been doing this for 34 years. So he knows what he's talking about. But now we're going to learn a little bit more about you. So we're going to put we're going to put <laughs> aside Dr. King, the surgeon. We're going to talk to to Mike King here a little bit. So outside of the hospital. I know you like to travel. Favorite place yeah. to travel? I think one of my favorite places to travel is uh, going on safari in Africa. That was great fun. That was just great fun. My family, I did that uh, several years ago, and I, I would really like one of these days to go back and uh, to Africa again and go on safari again. It's wonderful to see the animals in a natural habitat you just answered my second question because it was like where's your bucket list travel place it's going back where you've oh, already oh, been oh, 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 oh. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I haven't been to um to ireland yet okay and i'd really like to go to ireland because when i had my my dna tested apparently i'm like 98 percent irish so I'd, I'd love to to go and spend some time in, in ireland uh you know and i hope to do that in the near future perfect so you're 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 mountain biking your bicycling. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, uh, uh, you know, I used to mountain bike now pretty much my wife and I just have the road bikes, you know, but regular bicycles, of course, but, uh, we, we, we do that. We enjoy that. We do a lot of walking, you know, and, uh, and then I have, uh, another, uh, you know, uh, hobby, which is really therapy for me. And that is, I continue to have my horse and ride him. In fact, I rode him this morning, actually, before I uh, came to work. So that was good. So I enjoyed that. So do you ride your horse? And I know you've had some horses over the years. Do you ride them just kind of like mental therapy for you? Or, or are you in competitions? Or are you barrel racing? Or what are you doing with the horse? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm way too old for that. And I'm never not that good a rider. But I just do it really for therapy. But I, I think just like with the patients, when I, when I sit down with them and I try to walk in their shoes, vicariously i think the same can 
you, 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 know, you can bond with an animal that way and try to learn, you know, uh, what, how they feel. And I can tell, for, I mean, I had this horse for like 14 years, but I mean, I, I know his moods and I know, you know, and I think uh, animals are, are really, they're very therapeutic and, and, you know, you can learn a lot from animals. And I certainly have, have found that out to, to be the case with, with my, uh, uh, my horse, but we don't, we don't compete or anything okay. like that. My daughter used to uh, shoot off of him, do cowboy mounted shooting off of him. Uh, but uh, I just go out and just ride him and, you know, have fun and hope he has fun. Can, well, can he tell your mood? Yeah, I think he can. I think he can. He seems to be a little more, ner if I'm like really tired or fatigued from a lot of operating or, you know, some, some patients or what that I feel really uh, personally involved with, especially drug addictions that we see from time to time, patients that destroy their valves. I mean, it's very, very, that's very challenging. And it's, uh, takes a lot of me, a lot out of me dealing with those kind of patients, but yeah, I think he does. I think he seems to be a little more nurturing. He doesn't seem to be quite as uh, prone to, 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 you know, uh, act up or anything. He just, you know, today we'll have an easy day. <laughs> exactly. So we have this quick section here, Dr. King called the pact. Imagine that the oh, yeah. pact question uh, segment. So these are just rapid sure. fires. Who, who is yeah. your biggest role model? I think you may have touched on this, but Let's hear from you. Actually, I think my mom. Okay. Actually, my mom. She's a wonderful woman. You know, she taught me all the Christian virtues and everything, and and uh, showed me that you know your faith is so important. Best life advice you ever received. Be humble. Be humble. And kind. And kind. Well, and I think in your you're perfect for that with the the profession you have. Uh, favorite band or artist? And I know you play the guitar too. Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. So I like Taj Mahal and Kebbo, two great blues, you know, uh, musicians. Well, how did that happen? Blues from Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and many times I uh, have seen BB King. He was great. He was wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your biggest fear? Uh, my biggest fear is that that any given day I haven't done, done my part as a human being to, to bring a little kindness to this world, which isn't so desperately in need of, of some sensitivity. Hallelujah. So much, so much anger and, 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 you know, people who just, uh, uh, just in, need someone to just be encouraging to them and affirming them. So that's what I try to do. Bring kindness to people each day. And the last one is, what's your favorite movie? Top Gun. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I'm there with you, Top Gun. Yeah, oh, good. Okay. This has been so fun. So, folks, this has been Dr. Mike King, cardiothoracic surgeon. Today we learn about somebody who does save lives every day and does something <laughs> probably a lot more important than many of us do every day. And, and, uh, and the word I, I just got from him was, was humble. And I've known this gentleman for many years and humble is a great word to use for you, Mike, and, and for what you do and, and uh, people's lives you've saved and people's lives you've made better. We can't thank you enough. Folks, this has been Dr. Mike King, cardiothoracic surgeon. I hope people learn something. I hope people learn something about themselves, how to take better care of themselves, 
that if we run into health issues, that there are people out there that want to help us, will be humble helping us and make us a better person in the long run. Dr. King, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. We today. really appreciate it. And folks, until next time, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.